0: I uh, want to thank Leland, we were out last week and, and Leland stepped up and he, he did exactly what I asked him to. So he was able to get us caught up, so uh, I'm ready to get behind again. Um, but uh, I really do appreciate his help, appreciate the study, I enjoyed it, uh, it's one of the great things about the podcast. Uh, I, I, love, I love being able, even when we're out of town, um, to be able to go back and catch up on things. Uh, we're going to start this morning, but I want to give us just a little bit of context to kind of bring us up to speed. It, we are in the period of time uh, that's referred to as, as Galilean ministry. And so uh, some of the other gospels, if you remember, John actually recorded a, a shorter, earlier ministry. Um, but this is, the, this is the big primary ministry, um, and it's referred to as the Galilean ministry. If uh, what Leland talked about last week in John chapter 5, if that feast was a Passover, then this period of time is probably about two years. Uh, if that was not a Passover, this was a little bit shorter. But uh, I, I found this proposed timeline, um, and, and this is in one of the commentaries that I read. Uh, again, whether it was a shorter period of time or a longer period of time, that's not, that's not entirely important. But hopefully this just gives you a little bit of context for where we are in the ministry. So again, whether it was two years or whether it was shorter, we are not at the very beginning of the Galilean ministry, we're into it a little bit. So several things have already happened. Uh, Jesus has already uh, healed some individuals. He's cast out demons. He's called individuals as disciples. Um, And and what we were concluded with last week was this introduction of issues surrounding the Sabbath, healing individuals on the Sabbath, and this opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So today, we're going to be in this time period where, again, a little bit of time has passed. He's into the ministry some. Um, but he really is growing the multitudes and growing the followers, and we're going to highlight that. Uh, we're going to talk about the 12 apostles that are going to be chosen from among the disciples, and then hopefully we're going to get to the point in time where we can, we can spend uh, the, the back half of our class on the Sermon on the Mount. One thing that we have brought up as we've gone throughout this is just how different Jesus has gone about his ministry. And again, I think I said if you were to compare this to any other kind of campaign, whether it be a a political campaign, a military campaign, uh, even just a marketing campaign, if you are looking to reach people and influence people and you are using man's logic, we probably would have gone about this in in an entirely different way. Uh, we We would have picked different allies. You know, when we think about trying to influence and reach people, we think, okay, let's reach people that are already influential. Let's try to make people that are already empowered, that are already influential, our allies. And they didn't go that route. Instead, John the Baptist, fishermen, tax collectors, those were the allies that Jesus chose to spread his message. He went to a different audience. A lot of times when you're trying to start something, you're thinking, okay, let me again, let me make those rich, influential, powerful people my primary audience and then let them kind of disseminate it for me. No. No. He eschews those people, and he goes to the poor, the sick, the demon-possessed, the outcast. Also, too, even just in the message itself, a lot of times we want to start off with something that maybe everybody can agree on. You know, start off with something that's popular before we bring maybe the, the harder truths or maybe before we get to what we actually want to talk about. No, there is no easing in to gain popularity, especially if you're Christ. You've got the ability to work miracles. You know, you could just start with that. And get a really, really big following. And then once you have all those people, maybe we could start sliding in some, some truths about the gospel and the kingdom. No. He started right away. He was honest from the very beginning about exactly who he was. That he was the son of God. And you go all the way back to John the Baptist. There was, there was, no, there was no easing in. He started with the truth. And the truth was that the gospel was all about you changing who you were. Period, point blank. You have to change. And I think also, and Leland did a good job mentioning this last week, it's, it's amazing to me that given the gravity of the mission of Christ, that he was able to, to so wonderfully balance the concern for both the spiritual needs and the physical needs of the people. I, I feel like it would have been very, very easy to get caught up in the mission and to think about how how weighty and how important it was to spread the spiritual message throughout the entire world and say, listen, you guys aren't getting it. Healing you of your disease is not the most important thing. I'm trying to heal your heart. I'm trying to save you for eternity. But he was not unconcerned about the things that were important to people. And so when people came to them with their sicknesses, when people came to him with the things that were bothering them and concerning them, he took the time. And he was not too busy to be concerned with their needs. And it's just a a marked departure from what we would probably see anybody else who's coming at this with man's wisdom and man's logic. Okay? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, The parallels here are in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 6. But this is is kind of uh, touching on some of the things that we... Uh, we, we heard last week that Leland talked about with these issues around, around the Sabbath, this day of rest. And I think Leland did a really good job in highlighting what the primary issue is here. And it's not that there are individuals that are breaking Old Testament commands and getting away with it. What we've seen here is that the Pharisees, and, and if you remember, the, the genesis of the Pharisees go back 300 years is that there are all these outside Greek and Gentile influences on the people. And the Pharisees say, no, we need to go back to the law. Good start. Good idea. But then they took it too far. And so now they've taken the law and they've added all of their own commandments. And so they have, they have codified as religion, as God's commandment, all these additional rules that you need to do if you want to be holy. And so this extends to the Sabbath. There are all these things now that you cannot do on the Sabbath. So as we come to Matthew chapter 12 in the first couple of verses here, Jesus and his disciples are going through the fields, they're hungry, and so they pluck a couple of heads of grain to eat. And the Pharisees see it and they say, "Gotcha, there you are. You are doing work on the Sabbath. You are harvesting on the Sabbath, and now you've broken the law." Well, well is that what they're doing? No, they weren't doing that. They weren't performing work. they weren't harvesting. They were hungry, they picked something up to eat, and they ate it. But the Pharisees are so intent on catching them and finding some way to prove that Christ is wrong, that they have, they have, lashed, they have latched on. It's interesting to me, in Matthew, at least in my Bible, in verse 2, there's an exclamation point. <laughs> you know, you can see how excited they are just to catch Christ in, in some form of wrongdoing. But what he does here is he turns this on them. So in verses three through five, Jesus provides two examples from the Old Testament that contradicts these self-imposed rules. And the first one he uses is David. He says, now don't you remember, he said, don't you remember David, what he did when he was hungry and those that were with him, how he went to the priest and they used bread that had been consecrated for the temple. He was able to take the showbread and eat the showbread. And he also gives them another example. He says, just think about your priests. Your priests break the Sabbath They they perform this work. And so he just highlights to them the the inconsistency with the rules that they've presented. But then he hits them with the real truth. And and this is what he's really getting at is when you come down to verses 6 through 8. And and especially there in verse 7. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He's quoting here from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. But, but he's getting to them and he's saying, listen, you guys have got to start thinking differently. This, this religion, righteousness before God, is not a checklist to be maintained. It, it is not, this, it is not this, this set of rules that you have to go through and, and, and constantly be sure that somebody's not breaking a rule. And he points out there, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, it, it makes me think of, of Saul in First Samuel chapter 15. When Saul did not obey the commandment of the Lord. When God told him to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. But he preserved the king. He preserved the best of the flocks. And when he's confronted about this, he says, Oh, well, you know, the, the people did that, but we were going to offer it as a sacrifice to God. And what does it say there in 1 Samuel 15? He said, I don't want that sacrifice. I want your obedience. And that's, I think that's what, what he is getting at here. He's saying, listen, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want your hearts. Now, this is not an excuse to disregard the commandments of the Lord. But it's saying, you've got to think differently. You've got to go a little bit deeper. It's not just about going through the motions. It's about having a heart that desires to worship God. And I think he's pointing out here, where is your heart? To these Pharisees, what are you trying to do here? Are you concerned that me and my disciples have abandoned and forsaken our relationship with the Lord by plucking these grains of head to eat because we were hungry? Or were you looking for a gotcha moment? And I think that's, that's what he's driving at them here. And the, I think the thought continues as you go on into the next couple of verses. Um, as, as you go on into uh, verses, let's see, verses 9 down through about verse 14. And it seems like chronologically it happens just a couple of moments later. Jesus goes to the synagogue. So he's departed from this field. He goes to the synagogue. And there's a man who has a withered hand. So this, And we're not told exactly what happened, but some kind of physical malady. His hand is drawn in. I get the impression that his hand is unusable. He has some kind of impairment in this hand. And it says, when you come there to verse 10, they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then it reveals their intent that they might accuse him. Uh, what I think is interesting is that when you go to Mark's account, when you go to chapter 3 and in verse 5, it mentions that as Jesus kind of surveys the situation, he is angry. He is angry because now they've taken him a step further. Not only, you know, you think prior, they were sitting there so they could have this gotcha moment so they could accuse him. Now, they are willing to let an individual suffer just so that they can make a point. Just so that they can possibly trap him in some little form of wrongdoing. And and I I can imagine having those same, I can imagine getting fired up. You guys would let this individual suffer. You know, and, and, and remarkable here too, they know that he has the power to do that. Think about that for a second. You are trying to trap an individual that you know has the power to heal. That, that kind of that hit me. I was like, listen, like, you can see that he has this power. He has this power that comes from God to heal. And your first thought is, ah, maybe we can get him to use that and heal somebody, but do it on the wrong day so that we can get him. That's where they're at right now. That's where the Pharisees are at. And, and it says in Mark chapter 3 that it made, it made Jesus angry. It made him angry to see that their hearts had been so hardened. That at this point in time, this group of individuals was so far beyond looking for the truth. They were so far beyond trying to gain a deeper relationship with God. They were at the point where all they wanted to do was trap him. And so he, again, he points out their hypocrisy. And he says in, in those following verses, he says, listen, what would you do if it was one of your animals? If it was one of your animals, uh, he says, you would fix it. Verse 11, if you had a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would you not lay hold of it and lift it out? Well, then, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Just, just how ridiculous is this, that you would let this individual suffer when any one of you would go and lift an animal out of a ditch? And so he, he points out to them, and of course they're furious when they realize, and that, that's what often happens when we are confronted with the truth and we are revealed to be the ones that are petty and that are thinking the wrong way, instead of getting smacked across the face and saying, Man, I can't believe I've gotten to this point. I can't believe I've gotten to this point that, you know, I, I, have, I have departed so far from what my original intent was. No, instead, we actually just dig in our heels. We dig in our heels, and we can't come to a realization of the truth. And so when he heals this man, the Pharisees are driven to plot against him. And so uh, when, when he does that, he withdraws. You know, Christ has this ability, just this perfect timing, to know when to confront, to know when to withdraw, to know when to give space, uh, and, and to know when to be in the middle of things. And so he withdraws. Um, and it mentions that the multitudes the multitudes follow, and he heals them all. You know, he, he again, as we brought out before, he is not unconcerned with the things that afflict them. Could this man, with a withered hand, could he have been saved and been righteous before God and lived a faithful life with his withered hand? Yes, absolutely. But Christ was not unconcerned with the thing that bothered him and, and afflicted him. And, and I think that, that, is, that is a lesson for us. Uh, it, is, it is very, very easy to say, listen, you need to focus on the important things. Don't worry. Don't worry about whatever impairment. Don't worry about whatever is concerning you right now. Focus on the more important things. Jesus was focused on the important things, but yet he still also had a concern for these individuals, and it mentions that he heals these, these multitudes. Uh, we're, we're told a little bit more uh, about these multitudes in the other accounts. If you actually go back in Matthew to chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, uh, or if you go over to Mark, um, if you go over to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, uh, it, it tells us a little about all the people that are following him at this point. So he's withdrawn, he's left the synagogue, and now he's going out. But it talks about all these people. And basically from Idumea, from, uh, which is Edom, so Edom, south you know, kind of south, south there of, uh, of Jerusalem, all the way up to Tyre and Sidon. So we are talking about people from all over the region of Judea that are following him. So this is not just a small group of people. We are talking about individuals from many, many miles. You know, if you think about if he's in that, that Galilee region, Tyre and Sidon, that's like 50 miles away. We're talking about 50 miles by foot. That's 50 miles away. Edom Edom to the south of Jerusalem is over 100 miles away. Individuals are traveling for days upon days to come to Galilee to be where Christ is, to hear his teaching. Okay, so that's, that's the kind of impact that he is having at this point. When we talk about, we talk about fame, I, I don't want us to use that word fame lightly. This is serious. There, there, are, there are huge, huge numbers of people that are coming to hear Jesus because of the message that he is preaching. And it mentions here in Matthew, if you go back to Matthew chapter 12, this prompts Matthew to quote from Isaiah chapter 42. When he quotes from Isaiah chapter 42 and talks specifically about the impact that Christ is going to have on the Gentiles. Again, Tyre and Sidon, Edom, we're not talking about just Jews here. We're talking about all individuals, Jews and Gentiles. And it says in Matthew chapter 12, and there in verse 18 behold my servant whom I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the gentiles. And so this I think this is just giving us an idea for the kind of impact and scope that he is having at this point in time in the ministry. That is not always going to be this way. As we come later in the ministry there is going to be a period where he is not this popular where he starts to tell, to tell the people some things that are a lot harder to digest. But at this point in time, we have just huge numbers of people that are coming to him. okay. And so at this point, let's, let's shift over to Luke chapter 6. Um, this, this, is a, this is a section that, that Matthew doesn't actually cover, so we'll, we'll come back to Matthew in a minute. But when you go to Luke chapter 6, you've got all of these individuals, and, and it's remarkable, as, as Christ does so often, he takes this time to go by himself and to pray. So, Luke chapter six, and there in verse twelve, it says, "It came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God." Uh, it, it's hard to imagine what he would have had going through his mind at this point in time. Um, I'm sure, as, as he was a man, there are some there are some physical some physical things that are going on. I would imagine some exhaustion. Thinking about teaching all these people constantly, healing all these people constantly, being around all these people constantly. You know, there, there is, there's probably some physical exhaustion that's going on. I would imagine also that as he is seeing now these swelling numbers of people, th- there is an emotional weight that, that is being put on him as he sees the responsibility that he has. Again, we talked earlier about the balance that he was striving to maintain because he knew the responsibility and he knew the weight and the importance of the job that he was there to do. And so when he is confronted with these, these, these physical pressures, these emotional pressures, uh, he's just the perfect example for us, and he goes by himself to pray. He goes by himself to go, and it says he spent all night in prayer. So he, he did not partake in sleep. I think that would probably be the, the earthly reactions of missing. I'm tired. I'm going to go get a nap. But he provides a better example for us, and he goes to commune with the Father in prayer. He knows that he's got an awesome responsibility coming up in the next couple of verses. It tells us that he's going to go and he's going to choose 12 apostles. Now, if you had to describe the difference between a disciple and an apostle, what would you say? What's the difference there? Okay. Okay. There, there's yeah, there's there's a, there's an element of selection, yeah, that's that's important. Well, okay, there's going to be there's going to be a closeness. Yeah, this is this is going to be the inner circle. This is going to be the inner circle. These are going to be the individuals that are going to spend day in and day out with the master. What else? What what else comes to mind? When you think about the difference between disciples and apostles. Mm -hmm. yeah two things there so so Nate Nate talked about uh, the gifts that they're going to be given and I think that correlates to what Bill said they have they have a mission that was the other thing that kind of came to mind I I think Tali you're you're exactly right there is a selection here Uh, a a disciple is is in a lot of ways self-selected you know a disciple is a learner a disciple is one who is coming to a teacher to learn and they are committed to that, that style of learning. They're committed to that, that practice of learning. An apostle is one who is selected. apostle is one who is a messenger, who is sent out. So there is, you know, the two things that I thought of is there's a selection and there's a mission. And these are going to be the individuals. These are going to be the individuals that are going to be with Christ day in and day out. They are going to be learning from him, not only from the public messages that he's going to be proclaiming, but they're going to be learning from the private messages. How many times as we go throughout the rest of the gospels do you see them coming to him afterwards saying okay you got you got to explain it clearly we didn't get it so he has a public message that he tells to the people like everybody they don't so they're like, all right you got to explain it to us explain it to us they're going to benefit from private instruction as well as the public instruction but yes they have a mission they're going to be the ones that are going to be sent out we have some of these these limited these limited commissions where they're sent out for a short period of time but ultimately they are going to be the ones Who are going to go out into all the world and spread the gospel. They are going to be the ones that do this. So they are going to be the ones that are sent. So there is a distinction between the the multitude of individuals that could be described as disciples. And I think you would have different classes here. You've got individuals that are probably just there to see something interesting. You know, you've you've got these crowds that are probably caught up in something that is new and exciting, and they just kind of want to come see. Then you have individuals that I would classify as disciples. They want to learn. They actually want to change their lives. That change their lives. Those are disciples, and now you have th- this group of men. These twelve men that have been called, that have been selected, and they're then going to be sent out with a very specific mission. Okay. Um, so as we as we go throughout this, so he, he's made this very important decision, and this is this is in Luke chapter six, uh, verses twelve down through about verse sixteen. Um, and then it mentions, as you come into verse 17, that, that shortly after this, and this is in Luke's account, he comes down, he stands on a level place with a crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people. So again, I see a little bit of distinction there. There's individuals that have come to hear him, that want to learn, disciples. Then there's also a crowd. There's a crowd of individuals that come to see, and he takes this opportunity, uh, he takes this opportunity to teach them. Now, you have Luke's account here of a Sermon on the Mount... So there is, there is a sermon that is, that is going to be preached here. And then we have Matthew's account of a Sermon on the Mount. In my estimation, I would imagine there are many sermons on the Mount. You know, there, there are, now we have some recorded here. This could be the same thing. Obviously, Luke's account is far shorter. Uh, you know, Luke's account could be a summary or a paraphrase of what's recorded in Matthew. Um, just two individuals that were recording different elements. I also imagine that this was not the only time... That the master got up and taught individuals in this region, it would be very practical to kind of go up on a higher on a higher spot and to be able to preach out to the multitudes around to take advantage of the natural acoustics, just to be able to take advantage of being able to see all these people. Um, So, so I I think you've got you've got two situations here, and I I don't see them in conflict. Um, So you could have you could have, and and again, too, I think this message is probably not going to change a whole lot. He's going to be teaching the same thing as he goes throughout. So we have, we have Luke's recording here, and then we also have Matthew's, Matthew's recording. Uh, I'm going to spend most of our time today in, in Matthew's account. We'll, we'll come back to Luke for, for one element, but, but if you would, go ahead and go back over to Matthew chapter 5. If you are, we've already talked about this a little bit, but if you are looking for an overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, one, thing that, one thing that came to mind for me is just this idea of, of Christ trying to get the people to think differently about the kingdom. Think differently about the kingdom. Think differently about religion. Think differently about what it means to have a relationship with God. The example that had been provided to so many of them was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it seems that at every turn, what the Pharisees are doing is not right. There's not a lot that they can be praised for. In most instances, they have gone about things the wrong way. Their religion, their worship had devolved to the point that it needed to be completely and radically overhauled. You know, go back to that idea of him coming in to cleanse the temple. You know, obviously there were some very practical things there, but I I can also see that as a metaphor for what is going on. This needs to be cleansed, this needs to be changed. We don't need to make a couple of tweaks around the edges. You guys need to radically change what is going on right now, and so uh, I, I would suggest, and that's the framework that I'm going to use for studying the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, you could, you could. There are gospel meetings that spend seven sermons talking about the Sermon on the Mount, um, and we're going to do it in the next twenty minutes or so. So, th- this is the framework that I'm suggesting. Is as you can see, as he is speaking to the people here, he is giving them, he is giving them commandments, he is giving them teaching that is going to get them to hopefully think differently about different elements. The first couple of verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, I think he's telling them, think differently about earthly status. Uh, again, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the princes, the rulers, they have this earthly status. They have this earthly position. It, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not out of the realm of under, understanding to think, okay, we would want to be like that. We would like to be wealthy. We would like to be powerful. We would like to be influential. Christ is telling them there that the true blessings are not in achieving some kind of earthly status. It's not achieving some kind of position. The true blessing is to those who recognize their sinful condition. Now, I think this is one difference between Matthew's account and Luke's account. When you read Luke's account, uh, you can go back over to to Luke chapter 6. It says, blessed are you poor. Blessed are you hunger. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you when men hate you. It does seem to focus a little bit more, at least to me in Luke's account, on those who actually have a, a, a physical disadvantage. If you are poor, if you are hungry, you know, you may be at a physical disadvantage, but you can be at a spiritual and an eternal advantage when you recognize your condition before God and you try to live a righteous life. That comes out a little bit more clearly to me in Matthew's account. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't think he's saying that, listen, if you want to have true blessings, you better go be as poor as you can possibly be. You, need, you need, just need to go be homeless right now if you, need to, if you want to be blessed eternally. What I think he's talking about is your mindset. Those that are poor in spirit, those that mourn, those that are meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay? Those that want to be truly blessed are not individuals that have reached some kind of earthly status. Those that are truly blessed are those that recognize their position in relationship to God. When we recognize that we have sin in our life, that we cannot eradicate through any means of our own, that is when we can truly be blessed. That is when we can hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we can come into that relationship with God. Those are the individuals that are truly blessed, not those who have some kind of status. So even when we're persecuted... Even when we're persecuted for this lifestyle, we should rejoice because we can have an eternal reward in heaven, and this life is not going to be this is life is not going to be the end- all be-all. Also, just because we may have some kind of a lowly status, just because we may not have this elevated earthly status, we can have a tremendous impact. That is, that is what Christ has provided to us time and time again. You don't have to go to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herods of the world. you don't have to be a great military commander. You can be the salt and you can be the light of this world just as you are. You can have a a tremendous impact. How many times have we talked about individuals that have responded to the gospel? And that one individual that changed their life has a ripple effect that goes on for generations upon generations. They convert their spouse. Then maybe they convert their parents. Then maybe they convert their children. Their children go on to convert others. And you have one change one individual that recognized their condition before God and changed their life goes on to dramatically turn, change the course of events for generations after that. It doesn't matter what kind of status, it doesn't matter what kind of position we are in in this, in this life, we can have a tremendous impact. And I think, he's, I think he's saying that there in verses 13 through 16. We have a responsibility. Verse 16, to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Each and every one of us can glorify our Father in heaven regardless of our our physical status. When you go throughout the rest of chapter 5, I I really think verses 17 down through verse 48, uh, he he is calling, uh, I guess real quick, I mentioned this earlier, but in Luke's account, this is another difference. When you go to Luke's account, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, he not only talks about those that are blessed, because of a a perceived disadvantage on this earth. He also says that those who have great earthly status and trust in it, they are the ones that are going to have woe brought upon them. So Luke's account seems to be a much sharper contrast between those that are at a lower earthly status versus those that are a higher earthly status, really driving home the point that the true blessings are upon those that are aware of their spiritual condition. Uh, Let's go throughout the rest of the chapter. Because I think what he's saying here is he's saying, think differently about righteousness. What does it mean to be right before God? What does it mean to be in in a right relationship with God? And again, if you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you are not getting the perfect picture of that. It is far more than just following a set of rules. You know, I I think about Luke chapter 18 and in verse 12. When you have the Pharisee that goes in to pray, and then you you have the tax collector. And the Pharisee goes in and he says, listen... Fast twice a week and I tithe. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm a really good guy. That was the standard. I fast twice a week and I tithe. I'm a good guy. I am righteous before God because I have done these things. And the contrast is this tax collector that comes in and won't even lift his eyes but says, Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus uses that as, as an example. Which one of these individuals was righteous and truly desired to have a relationship with God? It's not the person who's checking boxes off of their list. They had turned religion into this never-ending set of rules, and and they'd made them empty. they had made them empty. And so here, what Christ is saying is, is I'm not coming to tell you that we just have to get rid of that. I'm coming to tell you what that truly means. The Old Testament brought you a a certain way. The Old Testament brought you from there to here. It got you to recognize that there was a God that needed to be worshipped. And you needed to dedicate time in your life to worshipping this God. And now I'm going to tell you what it truly means to worship that God. And he says, I, I, am coming, I am coming to fulfill these commandments. I'm coming to give you a deeper understanding of what it means to fulfill these commandments. And he gives them five examples. Okay, the first is murder. 21 through 26. It is wrong to murder. But he's saying go deeper. Think about it differently. Not only is it wrong to murder, not only is that act wrong, but so is harboring ill will in your heart towards your brother. So is the individual that calls somebody a fool or an empty head, somebody that has that anger inside of them towards somebody else. And it is so serious that you cannot properly worship God when you have that kind of relationship with a brother. It is far more than just not killing someone. It is far deeper than that. True righteousness is having a proper relationship with your brother and having a love for your brother. Same thing with adultery. Again, the act is wrong. Everyone should get that. This is not an excuse to go out and commit adultery and we say, well, you know, but my heart was right. No. The act is always wrong, but it's more than that. You have to go deeper. Allowing adultery to infiltrate and take root in your heart is just as bad. So when you come to verse 28, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And it is so serious, again, that you need to take radical action. Same thing as with murder. Not having a right relationship with your brother is so wrong that you need to take radical action. Leave your gift at the altar. Don't even offer it because it's going to be meaningless. And go fix the relationship with your brother. Don't lust in your heart after a woman. Take radical action to eradicate that lust from your heart to the point that verse 29 and verse 30 say get it out. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, do whatever you have to do to eradicate this from your life. He he then goes also uh, and says in verse 31 and 32 this has serious ramifications for the marriage covenant. You need to think differently about the marriage covenant. This This is not what has been going on up to this point. This certificate of divorce Allowing you to just put a woman away and go on to another one. No. You know, this has serious ramifications for the marriage covenant, and there's only one cause for divorce. You go on to the next couple of verses, verses 33 through 37. He uses this idea of taking oaths, I I, I really think, to talk a little bit more about our character. Uh, If you go later uh, later in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 23, just a section where he just just absolutely destroy some Pharisees. I mean, he's just railing against them. It's woe after woe after woe. What's the thing that he points out as one of the ultimate hypocrisies is just this system they have of saying, well, you know, if you swear by the temple, you don't really need to do that. That's not a real oath. But now if you were to swear by the gold on the temple, yeah, you better do that. They'd given themselves all these little outs where you say, okay, well, if you swear by the altar... You know, you should probably try to do it, but, but now if you swear by the sacrifice on the altar, you know, that's... that's he said, no, you've got, you've got to get out of here. You know, this, this is talking about our character. We should have the kind of honest character that doesn't require some kind of escalating oath-taking for someone to trust our words. Individuals that are going to be part of the kingdom, part of Christ's kingdom. Individuals that are going to be part of Christ's kingdom. The citizens of that kingdom are going to be very different. They're not going to have these different little systems and rules and ins and outs. And that's what the Pharisees had done. They had created this maze of rules, and most of them were really designed to get out of doing things they were supposed to do. I don't really want to keep my word, and so I'm going to somehow invalidate the oath that I've taken to do it by saying, well, there's actually a greater oath that I should take. I don't really want to take care of my parents, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, hey, all the sacrifices that I've given and the tithes I've given, well, that's what I would have used to take care of you, so now I can get out of that. They had completely changed the whole purpose of worshiping God and having a relationship with God to basically make it more advantageous to themselves. And he's saying that, that, is, not, that is not what the kingdom of heaven truly looks like, and that's not what the citizens of the kingdom look like. Uh, revenge, and I'll connect these two together for sake of time. Revenge, verses 38 through verse 42, and loving your enemies, 43 through 48. Just what an absolutely radical thought. It completely eliminates any idea of transactional relationships. And so much of humankind is built on transactional relationships. If you are nice to me, I am nice to you. If you do something kind for me, I will do something kind for you. If you hurt me, I will hurt you back. You know, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very simple, straightforward method. Listen, if you punch me, okay, good, we're going to fight and I'll punch you back. And he's saying, no, kingdom citizens are different. Kingdom citizens are different. Think differently about righteousness. You are going to be so different from everybody around you. And that means that if somebody hurts you, you say, all right, keep going. If somebody is your enemy, you say, okay, you know what I can do for you? I can love you. That is how, that is how, and just, I mean, even now, this is radical then. This is radical now. This has not changed. This is not the world that we live in. We still live in a very transactional world. Where we are kind to the people that are kind to us. We like the people that like us. And we hate the people that hate us. And we are so polarized and divided along those lines. But that is not how we imitate the Father. The Father does not act that way. That's what he brings out here. The Father father loves all. The Father sent his Son to die for all. Even for those that are his enemies. Even for those that hate him and despise him. He gave them the ultimate gift. And that is the example that as kingdom citizens we are trying to follow. Okay, well, let's go on in the time that we have remaining to chapter six. Uh, You know, we've, I know we're moving through fast, but I still don't want to, I don't want to eliminate any comments. If you have any comments as we go through this, if something jumps out at you, please raise your hand. We'll get the mic to you. Um, You know, we've, like I said, I've been behind this whole quarter, so that's that's nothing new for me. We'll we'll, we'll make up the time later or I'll have Leland do it. Um, Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter six, think differently about your motivation, that's, that's the arc that I'm, that I'm kind of connecting this under. Think differently about what motivates you. What motivated the Pharisees? What motivated the people in the religious system of their day? Being seen. Again, having status. Having people know what they're doing. We've got a couple of examples. The first one is charitable deeds. I, I don't know if this is real, but can you imagine somebody getting up with a trumpet <laughs> and blowing a trumpet to get everybody's attention and then letting them know what charitable deed they had done? I, maybe that did happen. It's hard to imagine. But what I think is amazing is that we do the same thing, obviously, without the trumpet. We, we, we are so consumed with people knowing the good things that we do. We want recognition. I think there's an element of human nature that we want recognition. That's the whole idea behind the humble brag. Everybody knows, everybody knows about the humble brag? Like, oh, man, my back's just so sore today. I was like, oh, why, why is your back sore? Oh, well, I, you know, I helped so-and-so move the other day. Yeah, I was there all day. I was there all day. You know, we, we crave that attention. You know, we've got, we've got to put something up. we got to put something up on social media. Like, oh, wow. You know, just what a wonderful. Like, I was so blessed to have the chance to, you know, do this charitable deed for somebody else. But we had to put it on social media so everybody could see it. We crave that recognition. We have to be seen by others. And, and, and he's telling us here, he says, listen, you know, that's not the way to go about it. That's not what kingdom citizens do. That's not what kingdom citizens do. He says, if you're going to do something, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Far less putting it on Instagram, putting it on Facebook, those kind of things. The, the same thought translates when we think about our prayer. He, he uses the example there uh, uh, of the Pharisees who would go out and they would go on the corner. And they would have this, this wonderful prayer so that everybody knew just what, a, just what a fantastic relationship they had with the Father. That's empty. That's meaningless. What he tells you to do is... Go into your closet. Go off completely by yourself. Go to a mountaintop and pray for the entire night. If you want to have a true relationship with the Father, you don't need to be motivated by other people knowing how good your relationship with the Father is. You are invalidating that. Same thing with fasting. This, this idea of letting everybody know, like, oh, man, I'm just, oh, I'm starving today. Oh, are you, are you, are you sick? No, I'm fasting. I'm fasting, you know. It's that idea. We are making a show of this, and we've completely lost the true purpose of it. The true purpose... What's the true purpose of a fast? Is it just to be hungry? Time yeah. It's to spend time with God. It's to take time away from something earthly and physical and rededicate that time to God. To rededicate that time. And he's saying, when you, when you go out and you, and you talk about how hungry you are and you, and you look so pitiful you're not spending time with God. You're trying to get attention from other people. Okay? Earthly wealth. When you go to Matthew chapter 6, I think really verses 19 all the way down through verse 24. What motivates you? For the vast majority of this world, it is earthly wealth. It is trying to figure out how they can make the next dollar, how they can make more dollars, how they can keep those dollars, how they can grow those dollars, how they can spend those dollars. It all focuses around the money that kind of motivation is not going to be lasting. And it says, first of all, it's it's pointless. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. How many individuals have accumulated fantastic amounts of wealth only to lose it all, only to have it taken from them, only to gamble it away? He said, first of all, it's just pointless. You're going to lose it. And then eventually you're going to leave and it's going to be gone. You can't take it with you. It is pointless to use that as your motivation. And he said, and furthermore, you can't do both. We all want to think that we can do both. You can't. He said, if that is your motivation, if money is your master, God will never be your master. You cannot have both in your life. Finally, in this section, I think verses 25 through verse 34, fear cannot be our motivator. Fear should not be the basis for our decisions. And worry and anxiety cannot be the basis for our decisions. We have probably seen more over the past 18 to 20 months around this world of individuals that have let fear and anxiety and worry completely dominate their lives. We are bombarded on all sides with individuals that want to use fear and anxiety and worry to let it rule our lives and keep us completely caged in and keep us completely away from the things that we need to be doing. And I think that's, that's the purpose here. Do not worry. And he uses the common everyday things of our life, food, clothing, Shelter, the basics, the basics that God has provided us with every single day of our life. But yet, how many times do we worry about that? And we're anxious about that. Again, he points out, you can't do anything. What is worrying going to do? He says, which of you in verse 27 by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? Can you worry yourself taller? Can you worry yourself different? No. What is his advice there? Number one, to think about how God has supplied every single one of our needs never let us down. He's never let us down. Every single day of our life, he has provided everything we need and far more. Far, far more than that. And he says then, instead of worrying, instead of letting fear and anxiety dominate your life and keep you, seek first the kingdom of God. That's the true point. The fear and the worry and the anxiety keep you from seeking the kingdom. They keep you from doing the things that you need to do. They distract you. They depress you. They keep you in. They keep you stuck in your houses. He says, "No. Seek first the kingdom of God, And be about that. That is what should motivate us. We are better served to focus on kingdom matters. Uh, we're just about out of time. Let, let, me, just, let me just hit really quick, uh, just some thoughts about chapter seven. And we'll finish up with this We'll finish up with this next week. The, the arc there for chapter seven verses one through 29. Think differently about your relationship with others. All relationships should start with a humble view of ourselves. That's the most accurate view. A humble view of ourselves, not a judgmental, condemning view. But yet, how many times do we have relationships where all we think about is what the other person needs to do? How many times have you heard a lesson and thought, man, I know somebody that needs that lesson. (laughs) I know somebody that needs to change. I know somebody that needs to do this. All our relationships should start with a humble and accurate view of ourselves before we go around critiquing others. We're going to have to come back to this next week, but, but let, me just, let, me just finish, let me just finish with this. He is concluding this admonition, and, and we'll come and talk just a little bit about chapter 7. He concludes this admonition with the idea that we have to move beyond the academics, and we have to put these things into practice. True kingdom citizens are going to go beyond that. They're going to put these things into practice, and they're going to radically change their lives. And when they do that... These principles will establish us to the point that we can weather any storm and that we will be different and we can truly be that light, okay? Well, we'll pick up right there. We'll talk just a little bit about chapter seven. I'll have a couple of minutes at the beginning of class for any comments, so if there's something that, and I know there's lots of things that we missed, but please jot it down and we'll start next week with an opportunity for you to make make comments on this, but I, I appreciate your kind attention.